Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hey everybody, this is Tom Salemi, and you are listening to the 100th OIS Podcast. It's hard to believe. Uh, we started this thing on July 30th, 2014. It's just me, Jim Mazo, a weird little microphone, and a really lousy way of recording the calls. If you ever want to check out OIS Podcast number one and have a good giggle at the quality of the sound, please do. But the interview was great. Uh, Jim was a great first guest. But we've had over 90 other people on the podcast since then. As I said, this is number 100, and uh, we've had a great uh, opportunity to talk about uh, all kinds of good news, including innovation and ophthalmology, but we've also talked to KOLs, talked about new funds being raised, we've talked about uh, FDA approvals, IPOs, M&As. It's just uh, it's a terrific opportunity to talk to the newsmakers in ophthalmology. And it's really gratifying to me because uh, when the news does break, uh, this is uh, this is a place that people want to come and and share their stories. And for that, I am very very grateful. So, thank you for tuning in and listening, and thank you to everyone who is uh, has been part of this uh, of this two year journey. Before we get into today's podcast, I also want to offer some sincere gratitude uh, to uh, to Craig Simak of OIS and Emmett Cunningham, of course, the founder of OIS. Uh, for putting a great deal of faith in me to get this thing off the ground and to really expand the OIS community. Uh, Craig, Emmett, uh, Bill Link, and Gil Kleiman are uh, our other great co-chairs for our OIS events, have been uh, extremely supportive uh, with the cause, uh, helping me book guests, uh, coming on here uh, whenever I've asked, and uh, listening to my dumb questions. So thank you to uh, to everyone who's been supportive in getting this uh, this up and running. And that, of course, includes uh, uh, all of you who have tuned in for these podcasts. But before we get into this podcast, I just want to take care of a little bit of business and offer you a thank you for listening to the OIS podcast and for taking part of this celebration. As you know, OIS at AAO is coming up. It's happening on October 13th in Chicago. We had close to 1,000 people there last year. This year it looks to be about the same, if not more. So we hope you'll join us. It's a great start to AAO. Go to OIS.net, register for OIS at AAO, and if you use the code word podcast, very simple to remember, just podcast, you'll save a little bit of money on the registration fee. And this again is a thank you for listening to the OIS podcast. So since this is our 100th episode, we really, we do want to uh, make a big deal of it. So we've got a mix of great conversations uh, about innovation uh, at the very earliest stages and about sort of the next two years, when we had our uh, our one-year anniversary, I spent the time looking back. Now that we've had the podcast around for two years, I really wanted to take the time looking forward. What can we expect to hear or to see happen in the next two years? So I'll get into that part of the conversation or the show in uh, in just a bit. But first, I want to focus on a conversation about innovation really at its its earliest aha moments. And I, and I love talking about the aha moments. Uh, I had Robert Greenberg from Second Sight and Marco Mayan, of course, was involved in the uh, procedure that led to the creation of Second Sight and talked about just the moment where you see something really exciting is going to happen. And there was a report 
in uh, in the by it was a study by a Stanford researcher, and we talked a bit more about the uh, Stanford study. We talked about the Audacious Goals Initiative, which the NEI started to uh, to basically fund audacious goals within ophthalmology. It's a program they've both been very involved with. They gave a great deal of background on that, and, and they just just really got the they conveyed their excitement about where we are with ophthalmology innovation. But before we get into that podcast, I just want to have a little bit of, uh, get a little bit of business out of the way. Uh, believe it or not, uh, OIS at AO is coming up. It is uh, going to be October 13th in Chicago. I really hope you will join us there. Go to OIS.net, register. Registrations are pouring in. If you remember OIS at AO last year, it was a huge event. We had close to 1,000 people. Uh, it was a great day, and uh, it was a great start of AO. So, don't forget to go to OIS.net, register right away for OIS at AAO. Now, let's get into the 100th episode of the OIS podcast. All right, well, Len Levine and uh, Jeff Goldberg, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Thanks very much for uh, having us. And for our listeners, the, the first voice belonged to Len and the, and the second belonged to Jeff. And uh, very happy to have you both on here. I, I'm, I'm not uh, I'm usually dealing with uh, one guest at a time. And so it's, it's great to be able to sort of have a conversation about an exciting venture within ophthalmology. And that's the, uh, the Audacious Goals Initiative that the uh, National Eye Institute uh, has undertaken. And I know you're both, uh, both involved in that. We'll get into what brought us together today in, in a little bit, which was an exciting paper published uh, last month about... Uh, the success in regenerating optic nerves uh, within mice, but I, I think the 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 I'd love to get an update from you first, maybe an introduction of what AGI is and what it's trying to accomplish, and then maybe an update as to any successes or programs that uh, our listeners should know about. Uh, Len, can you can you give us a little uh, a little synopsis of uh, of AGI? Sure. Uh, several years ago. The uh, National Institute, which is the main body in the U.S. that uh, essentially funds research for eye diseases, decided to focus a large amount of their efforts on diseases where people go irreversibly blind. Most of those diseases are diseases where the problem is that nerve cells, neurons, die in the disease. And there are two major classes they're the diseases where the, the sensing cells, the photoreceptors die, and that uh, leads to uh, diseases such as macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa. And there's another class of diseases where the connectivity essentially between the eye and the brain goes, the optic nerve diseases, and those are diseases like glaucoma or people who have loss of vision from brain tumors or multiple sclerosis or certain types of strokes. And because these diseases are irreversible, because once neurons die, they essentially don't come back, it became a, a wonderful target, an audacious goal to essentially try and find a way to bring back vision for people who had irreversibly lost their vision. And this was the birth of the Audacious Goals Initiative, which is continuing and is truly going to make a huge impact on all of us. Now, has has that program uh, helped accelerate research in this space, Jeff? You're at Stanford. I mean, these are these are huge opportunities for for industry, which is obviously committing resources to ophthalmology. But but has this program enabled uh, academia to to put even more uh, researchers toward 
uh, achieving these uh, these AGIs? I think that it has. You know, the um, National Institute continues to fund, of course, the full breadth of research related to eyes and vision and diseases thereof. Uh, but there have been a series uh, over the last few years now, a series both of workshops, um, and some of these have been um, focused meetings on specific topics germane to these two big goals. Uh, some of these have been more um, open or public um, uh, uh, lectures, uh, seminars, etc., that have really worked to bring together uh, investigators' focus and really has gotten a lot of people talking about what the next steps in this kind of research should be, what are the big opportunities ahead of us, where where could real innovation make a big difference. And, um, And in addition, they've put out a series of specific requests for applications having to do with developing the next molecular therapies, uh, the next imaging tools and technologies for imaging the eye and imaging regenerative therapies. Um, the next one coming out uh, later this month has to do with discovering the next set of um, uh, molecules, be they genes or proteins, that could be key influencers of regenerative, regenerative medicine, both for the optic nerve and for the photoreceptors. Um, Oh, absolutely. I think it has spurred a lot of interest, a lot of focus, has almost certainly drawn people towards these research topics, drawn scientists towards these topics. Um, and, uh, and I think we're expecting over, you know, over these next few years also generate a number of, you know, significant advances in these fields um, that, 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 God willing, one day will really be applicable to, um, to these you know, rather severe human diseases. Absolutely. And, and that's, and Lynn, that's something we've covered here in the podcast, but specifically, I've, I've always been fascinated with the second sight story with the Argus technology of, of helping to restore at least partially some vision to folks with, with who had been blinded by retinitis pigmentosa. That was a, we had Mark Humayan on a couple of months, uh, last month, that first initial aha moment happened in the early 90s, and Argus just came out a couple of years ago. This is a this can be a long process. Where, Len, do you think are we in, um, in sort of the 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 game uh, of of perhaps finding solutions for for these two issues? Are we in the first inning, first pitch of the first inning, or are we midway through the game? Where where do you think we are? I think we're well into the the mid game. We're thinking in terms of a, a chess analogy. Um, you know, the, the the first the opening moves were made probably go back into the uh, late eighties, early nineties. Um, uh, people like Albert Aguayo first realized that one could uh, transplant a sciatic nerve, a nerve from the leg, essentially put it where the optic nerve is, and essentially see that there was some regeneration of some fibers from the optic nerve, the one that doesn't normally regenerate in people. Uh, they could do this in rats and show regeneration. And that was kind of one of the very early steps that led to an, a lot of work. Uh, you know, in other words, getting one's pieces out on the chessboard uh, over the next uh, couple decades. The real big step now is the ability to move an axon in the case of an optic nerve disease or recover a photoreceptor from, for example, a stem cell, you know, is more kind of exact scientific approaches that are kind of much more difficult to do that have not really been done well before. We're now able to do that more 
precisely and um, with tools that are really available at the moment only in the laboratory, but eventually we hope will be brought out into human use. And so I think the example of the paper uh, that uh, we will be discussing is a good example of a, uh, a good mid-game paper. It's not at the end game. The end game is going to be when we're doing clinical trials and actually seeing whether these actually help people or not. But we're into the, the, the part of the mid-game where we're basically focusing on uh, trying to defeat our our enemy on the other side of the chessboard, which is is disease, using some some excellent uh, uh, placement on the board of some wonderful scientific techniques. And I think the paper that came out of uh, Andy Huberman's lab is a good example of that. Yeah, well, well, let's get into that. And, that, and that's very encouraging. I guess uh, when I read the paper, I I sort of put it in the same um, timeline as the as the uh, um, as the procedure I, talk, I referenced earlier with. Uh, with second sight, uh, um, to hear we're further along in the game than than that is uh, is very exciting. Uh, Jeff, you, you're you're I think now a colleague with uh, the the senior uh, author, the lead author of the paper, Andrew Huberman. Uh, perhaps you can uh, tell us a bit. It was published uh, last month in Nature Neuroscience, and uh, basically there was a well. I'll let you get into the details. I could I could uh, muddy it up, but give us an overview of the paper. And what uh, and what the researchers were able to accomplish? Sure, absolutely. So, and let me just uh, say, you're right. I, you know, full disclosure, I am. Um, we, I am new to Stanford. Just had my one year anniversary, and uh, we have recruited Andy Huberman to um, Stanford as well. Um, and he's uh, in the Department of Ophthalmology and Neurobiology. And very lucky to have him. A very uh, really just sharp, creative, innovative scientist um, in all regards. The, the backstory that leads, you know, science always builds one, one uh, big advance steps, steps off from the prior. Um, there had been an observation that uh, a number of scientists uh, had contributed to in years prior, suggesting that uh, the electrical activity uh, that neurons normally experience. Uh, in fact, that's how they feed information from one neuron, of course, to the next is with these electrical signals that pass, um, pass, for example, down the optic nerve, carrying all of the vision to the brain. It, it turns out that electrical activity, which is stimulated by our vision out in the world, uh, this activity uh, is not just carrying information, it's actually also stimulating the cells you know, in this case, the retinal ganglion cells who project down the optic nerve. And it stimulates them to be more responsive to the signals that promote survival or promote axon growth or regeneration. Uh, and the suggestion, suggestion was really that this happens during uh, early, early development as well as in the adult in a way that could positively influence regeneration. Uh, what, what Andy Huberman uh, really and his team thought to do was to uh, take that uh, a step forward into something that's really, really usable, uh, testable, and that's visual stimulation. And uh, what they did very creatively is they picked out visual stimuli. In this case, these are very high contrast bars of, of light and dark stripes. Uh, and these very high contrast stimuli are particularly good at stimulating our retinal ganglion cells and getting them to fire. It turns out that our, uh, in our vision, uh, like in mice, um, 
we really like seeing the edges of things, including the edges of a dark area and a light area. And so he exposed the animals to these visual stimuli, uh, I think for an hour a day. Um, and, uh, and then otherwise, you know, of course, the animals could look at whatever they normally look at. Um, and, uh, and that stimulated a little bit of optic nerve regeneration. The, the way optic nerve regeneration is typically studied in this regard in the laboratory is actually to do a, the equivalent of a traumatic optic neuropathy where you physically injure the optic nerve. This happens, of course, in humans, albeit more rarely than glaucoma. Um, uh, but, but, but it's used very commonly. It's a very good model for studying the science in the laboratory. And so what they found is that normally, of course, when you injure an optic nerve in a human or in a rodent, uh, there's really just no regeneration at all, maybe the barest little bit of sprouting attempt, but uh, no regeneration at all. And of course, this is like it is everywhere else in the central nervous system. For example, spinal cord injury, once you injure those fibers, the loss of uh, function, sensory or motor function is permanent. The same is true in the optic nerve. And of course, as Len pointed out, that's fundamentally why this is an irreversible, these are irreversible uh, diseases of blindness. Uh, so, of course, there was no regeneration normally, but with this visual stimulation, there was a little more regeneration. He also studied uh, some signaling pathways and some specific molecular signals uh, that could be used to stimulate uh, regeneration, found that that also gave a little bit of regeneration, but the real step forward was when he combined the two stimuli together, the visual stimulation and the molecular therapy, and there, all of a sudden, he saw long-distance regeneration of these retinal ganglion cell axon fibers down the optic nerve and all the way to their targets in the brain, and I'll just end by saying that the really amazing step forward in this paper and what makes it really high impact was the observation, really the question is, the question is, if we get these fibers to regenerate back to the brain, are they going to go to the right place? You know, we can't have our pupillary light reflex fibers going to our visual centers and vice versa. We really want the fibers in charge of vision to go to the right centers in charge of vision in the brain. And uh, what they observed was that uh, at least some of these retinal ganglion cell fibers that were regenerating were regenerating right to the correct spot in the brain that they normally would have been during development. Um, so that was a very exciting step forward, a very exciting prospect when thinking about the future of regeneration research that, that, that boy, if we could get these fibers to go to the, to, to just get back to the brain that they might find the right spot. And, uh, and at least be positioned properly to restore vision. Hey, everybody. Tom here. Just want to take a quick break from this conversation to remind you that this is our extra special OIS podcast. It's going to go to 11, or at least it's going to go way past our first interview. So in the, in the second half of this milestone podcast, we'll be uh, running snippets from interviews I did at our recent OIS at ASRS, uh, where I had the opportunity to speak with uh, some KOLs and some investors and executives in the ophthalmology field. Uh, it was a great event and uh, a great addition to the OIS family. So uh, make sure you do stay tuned for, uh, for those interviews. Now back to this conversation with Len Levine and Jeff Goldberg. Len, this is going to require a bit of forecasting, but how, does this, how could this play out? I mean, is this a therapy that in some day... Uh, 
could assist or be used as a complement to uh, a drug or to a device to to restore vision, or is this something that could be standalone? There was a, a two parts of, of this treatment, but sort of where do we go from here? And if if this were to become something that we we hope will will treat people someday, do you have a sense of what what shape it might take? Well, for sure, this uh, treatment is is going to take place. I think many of us in the field believe it's not will it happen as much as when will it happen. The we know that we can achieve pretty amazing things in animals with respect to regeneration. The, this helps people who have acutely lost, let's say in this case, the optic nerve. It doesn't necessarily help people who lost the optic nerve you know, years before or, or months before, and this, the cells that kind of start the optic nerve, they're called retinal ganglion cells or RGCs, those cells are gone. The, the goal is not, therefore, only to regenerate, but also to reconstitute, to repopulate the retina with the cells that will end up extending those axons. So it's hard to be for sure, but one of the first steps may be to use the techniques that are suggested by the Huberman paper, not necessarily exactly the same because they're things one can do in a, an experimental animal one can't really do in a in a human yet, one can obviously expose them to, to lights, uh, to, to squares or stripes of black and white, but one can't necessarily turn on genes as easily in a human yet. So assuming that we have, let's say, drugs to do the equivalent or some kind of safe gene therapy to do the equivalent, maybe the first step will be to do that, to regenerate axons where there are still some cells present. So this means acute disease. Somebody's lost vision relatively relatively recently where we know that there's no expectation of vision coming back and it's worthwhile to test this um, in, in, in someone under, you know, who has that kind of characteristic, acute disease, loss of vision, no hope for uh, regeneration spontaneously. Let's now see whether these techniques can work. The second stage is, is to then extend this to where the cells are not, it's not just the, the connections are lost, but the cells are lost too. And this usually involves either stem cells, exogenous outside stem cells, or inducing uh, the differentiation of endogenous cells, some technique like that so that then the people who have lost vision uh, more chronically can also recover vision. And so for optic nerve diseases, I suspect that there may be a, a two-stage process that will start with the regeneration part um, and then the stem cell or, or uh, uh, induction of endogenous cells second. It doesn't mean that research in both these areas is not going to continue at the same time because we need to work on both of them. But in terms of the actual practical application, it may be that we want to do it in two steps. On the other hand, if someone has some real breakthrough equivalent to this paper, but with respect to uh, uh, stem cells, then it may be possible to test both at the same time. I, uh, I'd be happy to add a little bit to that. Uh, two things that I'm two things that I'm excited about in, in regards to this question of yours. Uh, one is that um, one is that the visual stimulation part, as Len was pointing out, is 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 really something that's testable today. Um, that's it's non-invasive. It's relatively easy to apply. There are a lot of variations on the theme, so there's still a lot of work left to be done. Um, and the second, really growing from that point, is that. Um, you know, we, as you pointed out in the beginning, Tom, um, we're, we're getting into areas of huge unmet need, you know, the visual restoration and diseases like glaucoma and macular degeneration, which are 
two of the leading causes of low vision and blindness in the U.S. and the world. Um, huge, huge unmet need. Um, and uh, although there's been really, um, really amazing progress, particularly in wet macular degeneration and a lot of activity in dry macular degeneration, for the optic neuropathies, um, it, you know, it's a little bit behind these photoreceptor degenerative diseases. Um, so, uh, but, but there's been great progress recently in figuring out how to design the clinical trials that can reasonably test therapeutic approaches in diseases like glaucoma. Um, and uh, so, you know, we're really, we've got, we've got these and other really great candidates coming up the development pipelines uh, and I know Len has also been, you know, deeply involved in the development of such candidates and, um, and, uh, and, and of course, many others. And, uh, and it's, we're really coming to a phase now where it's becoming more plausible, realistic uh, to move some of these into human testing. And, and we're going to learn a lot from these first trials, uh, you know, whether or not the first drug or visual stimulation or electrical stimulation, whether or not that particular therapeutic ends up uh, you know, uh, being one of the magic bullets that gets developed over this next uh, few years or decade, um, uh, we're we're gonna we're gonna really make enormous progress on the clinical side. We're now poised to do that, and I think that's part of what makes uh, this work, and frankly, the whole Audacious Goals initiative very exciting. I agree with Jeff. Um, this is a, a kind of a, a special moment right now when we're poised to to go to that next step. Um, you know, Jeff mentioned uh, the, the the fact that the 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 stripes the you know it's it's not invasive. It can be done now. Just by coincidence, last week I saw someone with a, a very severe traumatic optic neuropathy, and obviously I was aware of this paper. And I said, you know, there's no harm unless somebody's a migraineur, somebody's very prone to migraines, and some people get them from black and white stripes. And other than that, there's really no harm in looking at black and white stripes. Um, where they alternate or black and white checkerboards. And so it's, I, ca- I can imagine that someone very quickly is going to do a clinical study just to see, does it make a difference using the technique and, and maybe the parameters that were used in the human paper to see, let's see, is it, is it worthwhile in looking at the outcome in, in diseases where there is known retinal ganglion cell axon injury, in other words, optic nerve damage, it doesn't make a difference. We're, we're, we're poised to do all kinds of things fairly rapidly. This is a very exciting time. That's great. Does it matter if these, if these images are on paper or on a computer screen or, or a mobile screen? That's a good question. I, I don't know if it would make a difference. The contrast is probably most important uh, between you know, the degree of contrast and uh, you know, wh- whether it's resolved or not. That is, if, it's, if it's, they're so small that one can only see um, you know, one can't see the, the ganglion cells in a sense not picking up the, the differences between black and white, then that makes a difference. And if they're so big that you're not stimulating that many ganglion cells, that makes a difference. So it's really the number of edges that are detectable and the contrast between them that probably makes the, the most difference. Jeff, what do you think? I, I think it probably doesn't make a difference to your retinal ganglion cells, but I think it probably makes a difference to your you know, to your brain and sense of consciousness. Uh, it's, it's actually quite hard to do visual tasks for even an hour a day. Uh, you know, it's one thing to drop a mouse into a box where all four walls are made of computer screens, and there's really nothing else for that mouse to look at for, for an hour. Uh, it's harder to think about doing that, of course, with, 
with people. And I can imagine that if it's really just on sheets of paper, um, it's going to be very hard to get somebody to do that task. Uh, if you can engage them, um, you know, power of technology, computers, uh, goggles, other approaches um, where you can really engage the patient in the activity, give them a task to do such that they don't even recognize that, geez, they've just spent the last hour seeing high contrast stimuli. I, I think it'll take a little bit of a little bit of trial design in that regard, but um, but I don't think I, I I think in the end your your ganglion cells are happy to see that contrast, and we know that they fire more strongly in in response to high contrast uh, images, uh, edges, etc. No matter whether those edges are out in the world, uh, on a piece of paper, on a computer screen, however. We'll just hide a, a Pokemon character in there, and uh, it'll be the next new raid. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's it is interesting. I mean, I'm, as I'm talking to you, I'm staring at my computer screens and thinking, gee, maybe I should just have a nice black and white background there to 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 keep things uh, keep me going in the right direction. So, what needs to happen to kind of get to that next uh, that next step, Len? You're you're saying we're kind of almost at a tipping point. Does is the is uh, the the audacious uh, initiative goal? Is that have the resource it needs to, to, to tip the scales or does, uh, does, do corporates have to step in or investors? Uh, what, what needs to happen, if anything, to, to get us over the, the next side? Well, what I know about the Audacious Goals Initiative, you know, being privy to some of it, it's, it's superbly designed. It's focusing on the very best science through um, a transparent and uh, rational well-designed process for essentially competitive process for picking out those projects that are most likely to yield excellent data. Um, uh, and as you know from uh, all kinds of proce- uh, projects like the war on cancer, um, the, uh, uh, the voyage to the moon, whenever there's a governmental research um, objective that's well done, there's always spin-offs from this. There's always things that, that are very important for industry to, to, to benefit from, to play a role, and it's, it's obviously a synergistic that the, the benefits to industry turn out to be beneficial to the main goal. Um, I can't speak to the, the level of funding as such. It seems it's excellent, but I think there's always a role for innovative um, new approaches at all levels, whether it's uh, at the government level, at the commercial level, um, the academic level, these we you know we this is uh, uh, kind of a, a very large complex set of targets and many different approaches that need to be considered, and I can imagine that it may be that even though uh, one one approach is being looked at, for example, this paper which is a superb approach with superb results, it's very possible that in the end it may be a completely different approach that turns out to be the very best. And so I think we have to be fairly. Um, uh, open-minded in in looking at almost anything, into, into including who does it and uh, um, you know where the money comes from. Yeah, I would absolutely agree, and I would add uh, a couple of points. One we discussed earlier in the podcast, and that is, uh, you know, this whole stir of activity is really drawing a lot of interest. It's drawing a lot of interest from uh, obviously the researchers who are looking to the NEI for funding. Uh, but I think it's also just drawing up interest in the public domain as well, the commercial domain as well. I think it's, uh, you know, raising awareness that, hey, we're on the verge of some really big steps forward into these unmet needs. Uh, and I think that helps drive commercial 
uh, interest investment as well. Uh, and the other point is that um, really nothing gets from the lab bench into human therapeutics without going through a commercialization phase. Uh, so, so nothing that gets driven by uh, this National Institute initiative, by, by the big advances uh, uh, like those in the Huberman paper, um, n- none of that has any hope really of, of driving all the way forward to a broad therapeutic application without going through commercialization uh, phases. And so the uh, interaction with and, and um, uh, uh, collaboration with and uh, investment by the, um, you know, the commercial, industrial, biotech, technology, um, all of those, all of those industries really, uh, this is going to be, I think, drive a lot of opportunity, a lot of investment opportunity, uh, a lot of commercialization activity, because fundamentally, these are therapeutic candidates being generated that can be tested, and a subset of them really should be tested. As, as a digital health application, I, I imagine as well, as we t- referenced earlier, I mean, maybe a mobile phone app or something like that. For yeah, sure. absolutely. Yeah. Final question for me, and this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, I'm, I'm fairly new to ophthalmology. It's, it's very exciting. And as you both indicated, we're at an exciting time. You're both at distinguished universities, Len, you're at McGill, uh, Jeff, you're at Stanford. Uh, what is the, 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 um, uh, uh, interest amongst young researchers in ophthalmology? Is it growing? Is it becoming an area that's really uh, drawing more interest because we're on the cusp of doing some really amazing things? Or has it always been popular and it's just as popular as it's been? That's a good question. I I find when I go to um, study sections, we just had a grant review uh, uh, committee meeting yesterday. I was in the U.S., um, if I talk to uh, uh, medical students, um, graduate students, there's an increasing interest in the visual system, partly because, as is pointed out by John Dowling, a very famous neuroscientist at Harvard, uh, it's an approachable part of the brain. The visual system, the optic nerve, the retina, these are all just as much part of the nervous system as the brain is. And so for people who want to look at things from the basic science point of view, the, just the scientific understanding, the visual system is wonderful. For people who want to make a difference to find new therapies, the visual system is wonderful. And so I find there's an increasing interest, uh, a dramatically large number of people who kind of before may have looked at other areas are now saying this is a great area to work in. Also because we're getting closer to some real answers to these blinding diseases as we've discussed throughout this whole podcast and so i find that this is a a great time to go into this area and i hear that from from the young people who are joining it yeah i think len really nailed it right there um i you know i don't have i don't know sort of uh if there are numbers or data that you know uh, support or or refute that, uh, but I certainly feel and obviously uh you know we sit in somewhat biased positions here uh, where we are getting exposed to all of the most exciting advances and the most enthusiastic students and trainees and junior faculty. Uh, but I'll tell you, it's absolutely the case. The eye, uh, you know, we, compared to other neurodegenerative diseases, you know, we can, you know, you could do an MRI in the brain and get in the sub-millimeter range of imaging. Uh, you can do imaging in the retina 
and really get into the micron, uh, micrometer range of imaging. Uh, so we just, we just have an ability to deliver specific therapeutics in clinical trials, uh, unlike other areas in neuroscience, in the neurosciences. Um, we have an ability to image and look at outcomes with a granularity that can't be done elsewhere. So I think from the translational perspective, it's just, it's very exciting. I, I'm under the impression that ophthalmology has generated a lot of, um, you know, sort of excitement and uh, enthusiasm even over this last decade with advances in macular degeneration therapies, for example. Um, uh, but I certainly see that ahead of us. Um, and I certainly see the, the draw uh, and enthusiasm of our, of our trainees and junior faculty. Well, thank you both for what you do every day. It's an exciting field to be in and uh, very happy to be helping to tell, to help to tell some of these stories. And thanks for taking a few minutes today on the podcast to, uh, to uh, go over these exciting developments. Happy to, Tom. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. All right, well, for anyone who listens to the OIS podcast on a regular basis, and I imagine you all do, and uh, thank you for that. This is typically the, the time when I thank our, our great guests, uh, Len Levine and Jeff Goldberg, for joining us and for sharing their insights on ophthalmology. And I am grateful uh, for the time they spent and uh, very energized by the message they delivered. But because this is number 100, the big 100, we're going to do things a little differently. We're going to look forward now. We're going to uh, shift gears. And uh, rather than look back at what we've talked about the last two years, we're going to uh, talk to some some key opinion leaders, uh, both of the physician variety, but also from Wall Street and, uh, and other walks of life in ophthalmology to try to understand what excites them going forward. What do they hope to see uh, happen over the next two years? Uh, what milestones, what successes, what will we be celebrating? What will we be discussing at OIS 2018? And uh, and I got a, a great uh, variation of responses uh, from the folks I talked to at OIS at ASRS, and uh, we're going to share some of those with you now. Our first interview was with Dr. Tarek Hassan. He is the president of ophthalmology at Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine. He's also now the former president of ASRS. So he finished his two-year term leading that organization. And he was a founding co-chair of OIS at ASRS. We're very grateful for his help in putting that event together. Uh, I, talked to, I talked to Dr. Hassan about, again, where... Uh, he thinks we're headed over the next couple of years. What successes he's hoping to see uh, that we'll be talking about in 2018? His answer was great. And, and you can catch all of these interviews in their entirety at ois.net. And I encourage you to do so because I'm just going to give you a bit of a snippet from each of them today. Uh, but he, he, looking forward, he, he's looking for uh, a better understanding of, uh, of therapies in, in dry macular gener- degeneration he mentioned specifically. Obviously, he's hoping to see some improvement on the wet AMD side. I don't want to take away too much from his answer. We'll get into it in a second. But if you watch the entire video, uh, he gives a great assessment of where we are in ophthalmology technologies, breaking things down on a surgical and a pharma side. So I do encourage you to go to OIS.net and watch the entire interview. Well, I'm, I'm hoping we get further along in our understanding uh, of and access to more therapies for 
the things that we still don't have anything good for, like mm-hmm. dry macular degeneration, for example. Wouldn't that be terrific if we could stop those patients from losing sight with uh, medications that we think uh, are efficacious and, and um, actually uh, have been proven to do that? So we'll see some clinical trials that will give us data in the near term as to whether or not there are things in the offing. And we've heard today in our uh, presentations of other companies that have similar uh, exciting products in the pipeline. But in the next couple of years, we're certainly hoping to do better with what we have. On the wet AMD side, there, there are new drugs that maybe get reaching FDA approval within the next six months to a year that may add to our armamentarium in ways that we can um, manage wet AMD and stop scar tissue formation, for example, the anti-PDGF um, drugs. So we have uh, uh, ways to improve what we're doing. We have ways to find, hopefully, new drugs that are going to allow us to work on things that we haven't yet been able to, to do. And I think some of the exciting things with the imaging that are coming will help mm-hmm. us to better understand these diseases so that it will push us forward. I want to stick with the KOL theme for a second. I had a chance to talk with uh, Jay Duker. He is the director of New England Eye Center and, uh, dep- and the chairman of the Department of Ophthalmology at Tufts Medical Center in Boston. And uh, we talked a bit. He he actually uh, participated in a, a great panel that looked at how uh, we're going to be paying for breakthrough financings. And it was a it, that also will be available on OIS.net. We're getting those videos and reports ready. Uh, look in your inbox if you're a subscriber to the Eye on Innovation newsletter. We'll tell you when they're available. We'll also send them out to people who have attended the conference. Uh, but uh, do sign up for the Ion Innovation Newsletter. Just go out to ois.net, provide us with your email, and we'll make sure you get all this great content sent directly to your email inbox. Anyway, Dr. Duker uh, is looking forward to new pathways, uh, specifically related to VEGF, and uh, also talked about another uh, very important area that's not a, a, a trivial problem. It's, it's, it's drug delivery. So, Let's get into this, uh, this conversation with uh, Dr. Jay Duker. What? The most obvious ones, I, I think, have to do with new pathways. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been 10 years that we've been able to block uh, pathological levels of VEGF in the eye, and we're doing it quite successfully. And, and we're on the verge, I believe, of FDA approval for blockers of, of other pathways, which we hope will increase uh, the visual outcomes for our patients. And that's where I think the new innovations are mostly going to be in the next few years, is FDA approval of medications for new pathways, along with alternative drug delivery. Mm-hmm. Drug delivery really is something that we need to talk more about, I think. We do, but again, it's not a trivial problem yeah. when you're talking about long-term protein delivery uh, in the eye. Uh, if it was a trivial problem, the smart minds would have solved it already. I next had the chance to talk with uh, Dr. Mark Humayan, uh, who uh, earlier this year received the National Medical of Technology and Innovation from President Obama. I'm actually right now looking at a picture of him and President Obama with the medal around his neck. It looks terrific. Uh, Dr. Humayun, I referenced him earlier. He was uh, the surgeon who uh, helped out in the the first procedure that um, basically discovered the potential of the technology that the Argus II Second Sights device was built around. And uh, ultimately, of course, Argus II is now restoring vision, at least partially, in uh, people who have lost their vision to um, retinitis pigmentosa. So uh, Dr. Humayun is, uh, is uh, uh, no stranger to innovation. In fact, a big part of innovation in ophthalmology. 
he's also uh, the professor of ophthalmology and uh, director of the UC, USC Institute for uh, Biomedical Therapeutics at uh, the USC Eye Institute. So uh, he brings a, a combination of, um, of, of uh, an MD and an engineering degree into this conversation. So I talked to him about what he's looking forward to uh, over the next two years. But you'll you'll want to check out the entire interview. He actually, he and I had a nice conversation about the Stanford study. Uh, what he found uh, very um, fascinating about the uh, about the study and the results. So again, go to ois.net, check out the entire interview. But let's hear from Dr. Mark Humayan about uh, what he hopes to see over the next two years. Well, I would like to see you know the physicians be really able to use the the drugs of that they would like to use that they feel are best for the, in the patients mm-hmm. and not be continuously under the pressure of, of having to use a particular drug because it's less expensive. I think once uh, Lucentis, there's a biosimilar to Lucentis, I, you know, things are going to change. How much they're going to change, what that pricing is going to be, is going to be interesting to see. So the world of biosimilars is going to come to retina and we're going to see how that affects um, our therapies. And then beyond that, you know, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a gadget guy, so I'd like to see more instruments and devices in the operating room to improve our surgical procedures. Uh, visualization is a big part of it. What we see through the microscope um, you know, is at times limited. Uh, digital enhancement in the microscopes. Um, so there are lots of things in drug delivery devices we touched a little bit on. Um, and gene therapy, very exciting area. I mean, uh, who could who could balk or or say anything against being one and done? You know, mm-hmm. having one injection, gene therapy, and then it's able to treat disease. Um, and lastly, cell-based therapies. Um, you know, stem cell approaches uh, to treating these different difficult conditions. So, you know, it's it's very very exciting. I see a lot of these things coming through from policy to science to therapeutic approaches. We're going to shift now a bit to the business side of things. I was very uh, happy to meet with uh, Dr. Tony Adamus. We never uh, had met before, but he is the Senior Vice President of Clinical Development at Genentech Roach. Again, if you watch the interview, we talked a bit about his work with uh, Dr. Judah Folkman, who's uh, kind of a hero of mine, and uh, was uh, thrilled to talk about Dr. Folkman's work and impact uh, with uh, Tony Adamus. But then I asked the question, what is he looking forward to uh, seeing, happen over, seeing happen over the next two years? And uh, Genentech Roach obviously has a lot of uh, programs that are on the cusp of, of generating some real pivotal data. So uh, let's hear from Tony Adamus from Genentech Roach. So the big one is we just talked about is drug delivery. We'll have phase two data, which will tell us proof of concept, whether our drug delivery platform, the first one entering the clinic, works. Mm-hmm. We'll also know whether complement inhibition using the factor D inhibitor that we're developing will work. And we'll also get a good sense of the VEGFANG2 molecule, whether that's really going to be the next generation of wet AMD drugs. So we have a lot of data readouts coming out. So the next couple of years are going to tell us exactly how much impact we're going to make on vision loss and blindness. And let's keep with the business theme. I was uh, very happy to reconnect with Adnan Butt. Adnan is the senior biotech analyst at RBC Capital Markets. Uh, he's provided some insight for us here at the podcast and uh, for some of our articles for Ion Innovation Newsletter as well. He's a great friend of OIS. And uh, we had a, a lengthy interview about what the street's looking for from ophthalmology. Again, check that out on ois.net. But then we got into the question, what, does, what will he be watching over the next two years? What success stories does he hope or anticipate 
we'll be talking about in OIS 2018. Let's have a listen. Well, in, in the biotech arena, things are driven by data. So phase three data is what makes or breaks companies. And uh, phase two data is, is not as important, but also very important. So over the next 18 months, there is a slew of front of the eye and back of the eye that data that we'll be reading out. And I think if uh, more of those studies are positive versus negative, or if some of those companies are really attra- rewarded enough in the public markets, that that will keep investor sentiment into the space and then keep things moving forward. Great thoughts from, from Adnan. This is really going to be a critical two years for the ophthalmology sector. Uh, hopefully, the bulk of those clinical trial results will uh, will tip in the positive scale. I then had the chance to speak with uh, Tracy Saxton. She's an investment director at Roach Venture Fund. I've never met her before, so it was a great opportunity to connect with uh, with Roach, which is, of course, a, a huge investor in the space. And again, talk to Tracy about many different things within Roach, how she came to join Roach's uh, venture fund, how she came to, to come into venture capital overall. But then we, we centered on the question, what would she like to see happen over the next two years? Let's have a listen. I think that uh, with um, macular degeneration, which is something obviously that uh, Roche Genentech is, is quite heavily involved in, you know, we'd really like to see you know, earlier diagnosis. Uh, um, patients are frequently don't have, already have vision loss in one eye by the time they start treatment. So we'd like to see that could expand uh, vision gains and saving vision for a lot of people if we could get get them into treatment earlier. We'd love to see um, uh, changes in delivery or residence time on the back of the eye for macular degeneration as well, really um, make it uh, reduce the burden on physicians and patients to be able to get this vision-saving treatment. And, you know, I'm also really interested in hearing um, about opportunities in the glaucoma space that isn't necessarily around intraocular pressure. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of biology that's around the back of the eye in the uh, uh, retina and the neurons that I think could really um, give much better efficacy to patients than um, just looking at IOP. So I think that from both a clinical endpoint and clinical target perspective, there could be some really interesting gains in that space as well. I have a recent uh, Stanford study about the neural regrowth of the ocular nerves just is really fascinating. Yeah, it's going to be... Star Trekky uh, stuff. Yeah. So if we can get into therapeutic realms that really benefit you know, the neural health around the eye, I think that could be really uh, interesting. I had the opportunity to speak with many folks at OIS and ASRS, and again, you can find those interviews up on OIS.net. But we're going to wrap up this podcast with uh, some comments from Aaron Shapiro. Uh, Aaron is a uh, vice president of Aura. Aura has been a longtime uh, partner slash sponsor with uh, OIS. Very happy to be uh, working with them on these events. And uh, they basically work with companies to help manage their their clinical trials in the many different uh, specialties within ophthalmology. And Aaron is focused on the retina. And uh, you should check out the interview. Uh, he's got a, a, an amazing recall. Uh, he actually came to the interview with a laptop to sort of help him jog his memory, but never needed it and uh, was very in-depth with his uh, the answers to my questions. So kudos to you, Aaron Shapiro. But again, I asked him the question, what uh, what did he hope to see happening, happening over the next two years? I think it's really going to be um, 
uh, a future, you know, two years of uh, what's next beyond uh, VEGFs mm-hmm. and uh, certainly gene therapy. So I, I think we'll hopefully see some good news on uh, on, on the Spark uh, product and, um, and and certainly with uh, with Fovista coming. So so the, hopefully those will be um, two products that will propel us into something beyond, um, you know, where we are now. And uh, there's quite, uh, as we talked about today, there's quite a lot in the pipeline to look forward to. Excellent. And going forward beyond that, of course, you're very excited about the retina space. Obviously, um, it's, it's, what do you see happening beyond the next couple of years? Where are we in five or ten years? Do you see a whole yeah. A, yeah. A, a so wide I think, gamut of offerings? Yeah. So I, I think we'll be probably looking at you know, second and third generation types of uh, products. So you know, certainly in terms of the, you know, what's next beyond Argus will probably be you know, implants with more electrodes. So mm-hmm. we're going just from you know, being able to allow light detection to probably you know, better shape recognition. And, um, and and maybe even beyond uh, on the on the gene therapy side of things. Hopefully, we'll have actually some cures for some of these um, inherited retinal diseases. And um, uh, certainly, as we we talked earlier, uh, targeting dry AMD and finding you know finding a you know actual treatment for dry AMD would be would be um, uh, really a, a huge step in in conquering that holy grail. So that's it. This is a wrap of our 100th OIS podcast. Again, I'm grateful to everyone uh, over the two years that I've been doing this podcast, everyone who's made themselves available to us uh, to uh, share their thoughts about their companies, about their research, about their practices. Uh, They've uh, lent so much to the OIS conversation, and I am grateful. Uh, Thank you again to you, our listeners, for, uh, for joining us on this ride. This obviously would be no fun without you, and uh, we really do appreciate your support. Again, uh, if you register for OIS, uh, go to ois.net, use the uh, the code podcast, and uh, we'll take a little bit of money off the uh, off the registration fee as a thank you for your support of the OIS podcast. Thanks again to our guests, our first two guests, Len Levine and Jeff Goldberg, for sharing their thoughts of where we are uh, in ophthalmology innovation and uh, truly exciting stuff happening. I I can't wait uh, to see what we've talked about two years from now uh, on the OIS podcast. This is an enormously fun trip for me. Thanks uh, to everyone who participated at OIS at ASRS. Uh, I don't want to go into every uh, guest that we were able to talk to. But I do want to remind you to go to ois.net if you'd like to uh, watch those interviews. We'll be posting those those up shortly. And, of course, we'll send them directly to your inbox if you'd like. Just sign up for the Eye on Innovation newsletter. And you can do that at ois.net. All we need is your email. Really simple. And uh, you'll get the videos, these great podcasts, and our original content from our OIS editorial team sent directly to your inbox. Finally, I want to take uh, just uh, a minute to offer some thanks that are uh, really long overdue. Uh, This is an extreme team effort. Uh, I'm the one who gets the the pats on the back at OIS, but uh, at the start of this podcast, I thank Craig and Emmett and uh, Bill and Gil for their support uh, at the higher level. But uh, standing right by my side and putting this podcast together, I'm blessed to have uh, folks like Mario Escamilla, who has assembled uh, pretty much every podcast that we've done for OIS and is uh, has coached me through uh, 
some of the rougher times, uh, giving me giving me some uh, ideas as to how we can improve things. So this would not have been possible without Mario's help. Uh, likewise, Karen England, who heads up our marketing team, uh, she is uh, the one who gets our uh, newsletters out, who helps us assemble our uh, podcasts. And uh, without Karen's help, uh, this simply does not happen. Evan Munez is a great uh, a great contributor to the, the newsletter process, puts the podcast up for us, helps with the social media marketing and, and, and gets the word about word out about the OIS podcast. Couldn't do it without Evan's help. And finally, of course, Danielle Silva, who uh, organizes every OIS, does a fantastic job uh, keeping all those cats in a herd and moving them forward. Uh, she uh, does a, such a bang-up job with the events. It makes uh, creating the content for OIS just so much simpler. So thank you to all of my colleagues, and I'm leaving out some. There's, there's many other folks here at Healthogy who have a role in putting out these, uh, these conferences and this content, and uh, very grateful for their, uh, for their help specifically in getting the OIS podcast out and wanted to thank them publicly. So thanks to everyone at Healthogy and OIS for making these programs possible. And thanks again to our listeners for joining us. And don't forget to go to OIS.net. Use the podcast code to save yourself some money when you register for OIS at AAO on October 13th. And we will see you in Chicago.